0: May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. He's sitting on the side of the mount. And he's in the middle of what we call his sermon on the mount. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. And I'd like to imagine that Jesus was a good modern-day Anglican or Lutheran or Roman Catholic, and that he kept his sermons to fifteen minutes or so. But I'm not so sure that that was the case. I mean, I did a research and, and I or a search, and I I calculated the total words that uh, are recorded for us in Matthew's chapter five through seven. And they came up to about 2,500 words. And that's just longer than my sermon last week and about the length of this sermon today, both of which are roughly anywhere between 15 and 17 minutes. But I also imagine that Matthew did not record and write every single word that Jesus said. I don't think Matthew was like a court stenographer, quickly writing each word in shorthand and translating it into longhand later. The sermon was much longer, probably with interaction, maybe even breaks in between. Maybe this was an all-through-the-day type sermon, a three-hour Good Friday service, if you will. And Actually, some have said that it may be after this sermon that Jesus ended up feeding the multitudes. And Jesus covered a lot of different things in this sermon. One writer wrote, Our Lord's Sermon on the Mount is not a a three points and a poem sermon. In fact, in the course of this single sermon, Jesus touches on more than 20 topics. And if I were to preach a 20 point sermon, I think we'd have a revolt here in church today. (laughs) But that's what the Sermon on the Mount was more than 20 topics. From prayer, to fasting, to the Beatitudes, to judging and dealing with brothers and sisters, to hospitality, to care, to anger, to reconciliation, to being a witness to money, and so on. And Jesus' teaching in all areas was such that it actually amazed. Matthew chapter 7 verse 28 says, When Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine." Today, we hear a portion of that sermon, at least as it's recorded for us in Matthew's account. It's a passage about anxiety and about worry. What will I eat? What will I wear? How will I live? How will I be provided for? And Jesus says, why do you worry about these things? And then Jesus uses an example of creation. I can envision Jesus looking out at the people before him. And at this point in the teaching, it's probably getting later in the day or into the evening. And as he's speaking, he's noticing that there's some distraction going on, sort of like in the front pew right now. There's some ramblings happening. (laughs) Sorry, son, I had to call you out. (laughs) I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Where will we get some food? We didn't bring anything with us. Especially for this big crowd. How are we going to get back home now? Where are we going to stay tonight? And Jesus takes this situation into account and he brings it into his teaching on a much broader level. No one knows 100%, but since the early centuries, the traditional spot for the Sermon on the Mount is said to be in an area along the Sea of Galilee, on what has been named the Mount of Beatitudes. A church has existed since the 4th century. The current one in in an octagonal shape, with each side representing one of the eight Beatitudes. And if you Google pictures of the Mount of Beatitudes on the internet, you'll discover just how lush and how green this area was. I mean, this was not a desert. This wasn't all sand around them. And so, as these thoughts begin in the hearts and minds of the people... As their bellies start to rumble and their mouths start to grumble, Jesus looks around and he draws their attention to the simple things of creation around them. He sees the flowers that are budding in the grassy area where they sit. He looks in another direction and the birds are are soaring in the sky. And looking out in the distance, he's looking over the sea as the birds are hovering and going over the sea to get fish. Behold, he says, the lilies of the field. He says that they're beautiful. They have a glory of their own. But it doesn't come from their own toiling. It comes from what the Lord provides in the rains and the soil and so on. Behold, the birds of the air, he says. Look at how they don't even work for their food. They don't worry about where they're going to get it. They simply are provided for by God. They feast on what God gives them in the fish of the sea or the insects of the ground and so on. So Jesus says, if God provides for the birds, if God provides for the flowers, will he not also provide for you, O ye of little faith? If we're the ones that are made in the image and the likeness of God, if we're the chief of God's creation, and God so cares for that which is less than us, will he not also care for us in even a greater way? And then Jesus drives home his point. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto you. Now today we sang those words in our gospel hymn. We sang both verses of it before the gospel and we repeated both verses afterwards. And when we sing it, we sing it to a short, sweet, flowing type of tune. It's soothing in a way. It's meditative. It's relaxing. At least in my mind. It's one of my favorite campfire type songs that brings me back to my youth, to some of my early Christian formative days when we sat around at camp and we sang it over and over and over and over and over again and around. But while the tune is soft and easy, the words themselves certainly are not. The truth of God's word here is actually quite a difficult one. Not so soft, not so easy. It's actually a punch to the gut. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I'm leaving off the latter half of the verse today so as to maintain our focus. Doing so doesn't change our interpretation and the truth of the passage. But it does us allow us to keep our eyes on Jesus' principle. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but I really wish Jesus had left that single word out of there. I wish he had just said, seek the kingdom of God. Actually, in Luke's account, the word first isn't in there, but its context implies it, and it's shaped also by Matthew's account. So you cannot escape Jesus' meaning to be, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And as I said, I wish I could ignore that word and that implication of the word first. Because seeking first is one that places a priority on me. If it were not seek ye first, then it would be much more doable. If it were not seek ye first, it would be much more manageable. If such were the case, then, well, I could fit God in with the hundred other things that I need to do. And I can fit God in with the hundred other things that I want to do. I mean, there are other things to seek in this world. There are a hundred other things to support. There are a thousand different things to obtain and enjoy. There are an endless host of things about which I could worry and concern myself. In this particular case, Jesus is speaking about those worried about meeting their basic needs. And we could add to that list. We could add things like how are we going to pay the bills? How are we going to get the right education? Or advancing in our jobs. Or overcoming a health problem. Or having the right friends. Or parenting our children. Or making that sports team or special club for those who are still in school. Or like us, how are we going to pay for a new organ? So, like Santa's list of toys. We have our lists of worries. We have our lists of to-dos. We have our list of goals. We even have a list of called a bucket list. Things to do before we die. So if Jesus could have just said, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, well, we'd all be okay. Because we could do our Sunday morning time. We could fit God in here and there during the week. We could wipe our hands and say, on to the next thing on my list. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? The word first is the difficult one for us. We are to seek first the kingdom of God. It really is a priority issue. And that's what lay at the foundation of this. What is most important in life? Is it the things we can't take with us? The things that last only for a moment? Things like a big bank account or things like luxury cars? Jesus gives us an example of what he means and he summarizes this all up in in this sentence in this Sermon on the Mount. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt. And where thieves break through and steal. The biblical word for all this is mammon. And it means the materialistic quote stuff. Is mammon our chief end? Is mammon our chief purpose in life? Is that our priority? I think our minds all know the answer to that. Even if our actions don't always back it up. Commentator said this, God must be supreme in the heart. Religion must not be a secondary passion. Here is the remedy for avarice or greed, he continues, and the love of the world. To fallen man, the regaining of his paradise in this promised kingdom must be the first and grand concern of his whole heart and life. End quote. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness next coupled with this difficult word first is yet another difficult word and that word is seek other translations translate this word as pursue, and the meaning of the greek word is to seek with the intent to find to aim at or to strive after and the last one which i like is to crave i mean i thought it would have been awesome if the kjv had said crave the kingdom of god The difficult part of the word seek is that it is an active thing. It's a verb and not a passive thing. When my kids were younger, we would play hide and seek in the house. And every time they asked, I would let out a sigh. I mean, it was sort of like, oh my gosh, I have to get up from the couch. That will require so much effort of me. (laughs) And I'd pretty much always give in and we'd play the game, but not without that sigh. Seeking requires effort. Seeking requires intentionality. Seeking usually requires our time, and seeking may require our money. Seeking will probably require sacrifice, and seeking certainly requires our focus. I'm reminded of two seeking parables that Jesus told. Jesus tells of the shepherd who lost the one sheep, and so he leaves the 99 others to go and to seek out that one lost sheep. That meant risk in leaving the 99. That meant effort in hiking out into the surrounding area. That meant possible loss as he left the 99 alone. That meant possible harm. Because if you know anything about sheep, then you know that they can get into precarious situations on cliff edges from which the shepherd would have to risk himself in order to save and rescue them. And there is this other illustration that Jesus couples with the lost sheep. That of the woman who lost her coin. You may remember that one. She sweeps the whole house clean. She puts other duties on hold that she needed to get done. All in the effort of seeking that lost coin. Seeking is an investment of yourself for the sake of finding and obtaining. And the point of Jesus saying this is that of investing yourselves in the kingdom of God. It means searching not for how to solve your worries, but on how you can build up the kingdom, of how you can support and witness and participate in the work of the kingdom of God within the world. The seeking of the kingdom of God is one of mission. It's mission-oriented. It's also identity-oriented. This is an investment of ourselves in Things special or spiritual habits such as praying or reading our Bibles and learning things like in Bible study or Bible uh, Sunday school. It's coming to church and serving around the church. But it's also investing ourselves in others. It's pouring ourselves into others, if you will, pouring ourselves into others through fellowship with one another and caring for one another. It's pouring ourselves into the raising up of others as we support and raise up our children or as the elders mentor and lead the younger with their wisdom and their experience. It's also investing ourselves in the ministry and the witness of the church, seeking to seize opportunities that are presented that help us bring others into the kingdom. It's not that we are gatekeepers to keep out the riffraff and protect our own. It's that we're soul shapers, Seeking to bring others into the kingdom and to she- teach and show them the greatness and the grace of Christ. And bringing God glory through that. And these things take a whole person investment of ourselves. God does not claim just 5% of you, God does not just claim 10% of your money. God doesn't just claim one or two hours of your time each week. God claims a hundred percent of you you belong a hundred percent to god or you belong zero percent to god as he said he that's not with me is against me that's the tough teaching of jesus here and this isn't me thankfully this is jesus saying this the gifts you have the blessings you have the money you have the job you have the wisdom you have The platform that your abilities may give you in sports or popularity at school if you're there. The influence you have been given over others as teachers or as pastors or as bosses or as friends. That all belongs to God. And it has been given to you for one purpose and one purpose only. To seek God and his kingdom. So let's hear anew this exhortation to us this morning from Christ. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things, they shall be added unto you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.